You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kastablasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Tim Pickering, who made a return to the podcast and where we really explored the area of commodities, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And if you missed that episode, I encourage you to go back and check it out right after today's episode. Jerry, always great, always a pleasure to uh, have you on. So how are you doing? Where are you today? Well, it's good to see you too. I'm great. Um, Had a busy week and uh, I'm enjoying these good markets. So Mm. that, you know, unfortunately, um, uh, determines my mood these markets can you believe that sometimes i'll sit here and go through my charts and when i start hitting the grain markets and it's been a good day i'll get up and reward myself with maybe some chocolate or a glass of wine or something so i'm highly influenced uh, yeah. by profits and losses shocking shocking, shocking, shocking. to hear <laughs> uh, well it just makes you human like everyone else jerry which is uh, which is fine now i am not going to do my usual uh, kind of market summary partly because it's a holiday week and you know um there's no really big surprise out there as such except maybe for one thing that i came across which i thought was quite fun and and interesting and maybe something that many people uh, in addition to myself was not really aware of but you know each week we talk a lot about the news relating to the u.s federal reserve since after all it is the most important central bank in the world so it would be natural to think that such an important institution would be led by highly experienced people who not only understood the global financial system, but also had some practical experience from the world at large. And then I learned this week, actually from uh, the guest we're going to bring on on Wednesday uh, when we dive into the global macro world, which I'm doing uh, together with uh, Jim Kassan, and where we're going to be uh, hosting um, the absolutely brilliant Dr. Ben Hunt. So anyway, Ben Hunt wrote this week this wonderful piece over at his Epsilon Theory about the experience that the Fed board members have. And it turns out that pretty much all of them have no experience outside the Federal Reserve System. A couple of them have a bit of academic experience and a couple of them have had jobs for short periods of time in the real world. And I have to say, that really surprised me. Of course, then again, you could say maybe I shouldn't be surprised when you look at their their track record of interest rate policy. And then, you know, we often talk about how important actual experience is in the trend-following world, especially when you have to make decisions about your model and potential changes during a time of uncertainty. So I'm not not sure I really feel reassured by this fact, especially because I think that we're going to see a major shift in the world. And... um, yeah, so I did. Did you know that, uh, Jerry? That most of these members are really just people from inside the Fed. Oh, I would have even thought worse. Just political appointees, 
Uh, but yeah, I'm not, I don't have a lot of faith. You know, I'm like a Milton Friedman uh, fan, so I'm more in favor of an algorithm or let's just follow the 10-year or something crazy like that. Let's let the market decide the rates. So I'm way off the mainstream. <laughs> well, speaking of rates, I think the other thing that I just find impossible to ignore at the moment is really what's going on in the bond markets and... You know, what this means for investments and strategies going forward, I mean, things that has worked the last 20 years um, probably are the ones that are not going to work in the next 10, 20 years. And when you look at charts um, of kind of the long-term picture of interest rates, especially if you put them in a lock uh, chart, it really looks um, scary in terms of the change in direction we've had. Um, and I think this will really be kind of a driving force uh, in uh, in what we're going to experience. Um, but what's been on your radar, Jerry? What's been... Well, just to comment on that, you know, yeah. if you remember not long ago, articles would come out, uh, written some written by CTAs, saying uh, CTAs have made money during this uh, with the bond market going up. And uh, how will they do with the bond market going down? Maybe not so well. If rates go back to where they were, uh, we won't make nearly as much because of the backwardation or the contango or something. So uh, now, whoa, now look what's happening. And uh, it's been a very profitable period with rising rates. And no one is really saying, well, if rates go back to where they were, we're all afraid they're going to go back to where they were in the 70s. I doubt if that's where um, those articles were headed. But it's just kind of funny that... Uh, Sticking to our knitting and hitting those breakouts and going with the trend, uh, we don't really need to spend too much time on what ifs and you know what happened in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I do remember those uh, articles indeed. And 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 actually, we we talked about from a trend following perspective, of course, the the gift that kept giving when interest rates just continue to uh, to move down um, for long periods of time. Um, but this could really be the gift that keeps giving uh, if we're going to see trends like this, not necessarily in the same pace that we've seen so far this year, but there's a long, long way back to just anything that looks normal uh, in terms of yield. Um, and um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And in terms of trend following updates in general, I don't think it's going to come as any surprise uh, that even this holiday shortened week uh, has probably been pretty similar to what we've seen in March and, and early April, namely a very broad-based positive trending environment where most managers would have done well in adding to their tally so far this year. Energies probably stood out for most people. Uh, obviously, uh, net gas up another 16% last week. Uh, I would imagine that that's high up on the leaderboard. But also grains, long-dated fixed income, uh, currencies, I imagine, have done well. And um, I guess the only thing that could have been a little bit challenging this week was the shorter-dated fixed income markets, but really nothing to, enough to spoil the, um, the week as a whole. Um, now... We have a couple of questions, Jerry, to uh, to deal with, and then you brought along some uh, great topics as well. So this is going to be a busy conversation, I'm sure. Now, I always uh, feel uh, a little bit awkward when someone writes in, and I'm not sure how to pronounce their name, um, so I'm just going to probably butcher it, but there we are. Um, this is from Ichai, I think, 
Isai, something like that, from Australia. Nice young man who wrote to me also on Twitter, so on LinkedIn, so very nice. Um, so I apologize that I can't pronounce, I don't know how to pronounce your name. But anyways, he writes, um, I truly regard Top Traders Unplugged as the greatest podcast I've ever found, and I have been a regular listener for over two years. And similar to Jerry, I frequently go back to listen to episodes more than once. So obviously when someone writes that to me, you're definitely going to get your questions uh, aired. You'll be interested to know that despite having a background as a commercial lawyer, the insights and lessons I've learned from your podcast alone have been the catalyst for my desire to entirely change the course of my career. I am still employed at a legal firm, but have begun the process of self-educating uh, or self-education with the hope that of eventually shifting my career in the direction of finance. Thanks for the impetus. I have a question relating to the often debated topic of whether to add different trading styles or stick with the trend following plus nothing as such. Perhaps it's a good conversation with Jerry or Rob as they seem to represent either side of this debate. Jerry has often expressed his love for diversification across asset classes, geography, regions, timeframes, and model speed. Um, it seems to me that adding different models, perhaps even models targeting convergence, ooh, that's a word, um, would appear to add even further diversification to a trading system. By definition, divergent and convergent models uh, have return profiles skewed in opposite directions and appear to be quite negatively correlated. This is just by observation. I've not run a regression to that effect. It just seems common sense that adding both divergent and convergent models will only increase diversification and smoothen volatility in an equity curve. Thoughts. So, and then he ends up by saying very kindly, sorry for it, uh, offending you, Jerry, but I don't think you're offended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I cannot be offended, uh, honestly. No. Uh, not by uh, honest, legitimate debate and questions. In fact, uh, it's fun, you know, <clears throat> to uh, discuss these topics. So, um, well, this sounds like Oleg. You sure that wasn't Oleg? Under, uh, an no, it name? wasn't Oleg. It wasn't Oleg. I would have definitely... Uh, been able to my... pronounce his name. No, this is a young guy um, out of Australia. I have had other conversations with him on, on LinkedIn, as I mentioned. So someone who's, um, you know, has, as he says, he's learned a lot and he's actually kind of convinced himself that maybe a career in the area that we deal with would be more interesting than law and who can blame him? Oh, I could, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, well, you know, I think... Um, he summed it up quite nicely, so I won't go over. He, he summed up my position, yeah. so I don't need to repeat any of that. So I'll try to think of something different to say. Uh, I do try to um, get diversification with my different entries and exits. And then, of course, uh, I trade uh, about 200 markets now, and all very small. So I have a broad diversification uh, in across stocks, commodities, bonds, and FX. So I'm doing something with the trend following. I'm doing as much as I can do with the trend following and not adding other strategies because I think proper trend following uh, should not place much emphasis on smoothness. So the his underlying reason, which is almost everyone's reason uh, for adding different strategy types is this diversification, which I believe as a trend follower searching for these outliers is uh, our highest calling and not being too concerned about uh, 
the smoothness and so I don't fall target. I would probably uh, add volatility management in just uh, randomly taking profits off the table or systematically taking them off like volatility management can do for you uh, versus uh, trying to add convergent, explicitly convergent strategies uh, and trying to come up with those. Uh, There's many downsides to fall targeting and management and convergence, which we've gone over. So I don't like adding um, that sort of strategy. And I think overall, to tell you the truth, you just make less money. And so since I don't value smoothness, and that's not what trend following is all about, we value preserving capital and being consistent, making money frequently as possible and hitting these outliers. So in my five things that I care about, smoothness is not there. So that's why I don't care. Yeah, and I, I think that those are great points. And I think I, I would add to kind of where you were going, I think, with one of your comments um, as part of the response. And that is that it is quite natural for people, I think, to strive for this perfection. But it's just not something we want to do because we don't really tr- believe that you can find perfection that is robust in the long run. Um, and, and I think this is one thing that people kind of have to... Um, deal with at some point in in their investment um, strategy and that is are you going for perfection or are you going for robustness and I don't think you can have be it can't be both and and I think we just feel that you know something that has worked for for so many decades is probably um, you know where we would find um, comfort uh, rather than saying oh yeah but maybe we can make it a little bit better yeah but and then the other thing that we've, we've talked about as well, Jerry, is this term good enough is good enough. And I think that's the other thing that springs to mind. I think the long-term systems, they do fairly well when the markets are choppy and there's not a lot of trends going on. You're just sort of treading water. We don't get whipsawed around very much. We hold on to positions and sometimes they'll start drifting in our favor. But what really happens, I guess, is when we make a lot of money, in the past, since November of 2020, I'm probably up 60%. And you're just going to find a difficult time to go to my clients and say, okay, so you've made a lot of money. CTAs have done well. Your competitors have done well uh, too. Uh, but can you guys be a little smoother? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, you get a hold of these big trends, you start making this money, and uh, everything's clicking. I mean, do people say that about their S&P? that has an 8% return historically and a 50 plus percent drawdown. You know, it's the most consistent thing going. It's kicking the ass of all my hedge funds, all my CTAs. I just wish it was a little bit smoother. No, no, come on. But oh, we have a different strategy, a different set of rules for all the rest of us, especially us poor old CTAs, just trying to make a living. And uh, you know, can you guys just spice it up a bit? I don't really like what you do anyways. Uh, I don't like taking small profits and a 40% win rate and and watching your big, huge moves slosh around and be so volatile. So can you add some other crap to it that's not going to do anything except smooth it out and make me make less money? No. Somebody has to say no, and I'm, I'm going to say it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is true because it's actually one of the things that I see most um, from uh, investors and potential investors is when managers, CTAs, trend followers go through a difficult time, especially if it's one of those quick ones like uh, a February of 2018 or a November of uh, 2021, the question always comes up, but can't you do something to avoid these periods? And the answer is, of course, we can. But as soon as you start doing that, as you rightly say, the long-term returns go down. And that's just not where we want to focus. Uh, uh, so so it is that um, very, I guess, it's very human to think like that. But I think once you buy into the long-term and you buy into the evidence uh, that trend followers have provided for all these decades... Um, I think you're going to start seeing it uh, exactly how uh, you, Jerry, described it. Yeah, you bring up another good point, um, is that I just don't like talking about um, Black Friday, you know, things like Black Friday, and picking out dates and saying, hey, that was a tough time. You know, that article that you and I talked about, CFM, uh, I tweeted, like, they, they randomly they just picked this period where... We, CTAs didn't make money when the stocks went down. So what? I mean, who cares? Is this what we're supposed to do? We got to go back in our research, pick out dates that make us uncomfortable, uh, tweak the system as if there's not going to be some cost somewhere else, you know, in, in screwing up our system to fine tune and over optimize Black Friday 2018, um, you know, all these different periods where somebody wants us to do better. So we're supposed to go in and do this research and tweak these systems to solve this little problem uh, that's so small, once the further you get away from it, the more irrelevant it becomes. And your hardcore uh, returns and what you're delivering to the clients starts taking center stage again because of these memories. You know, it's like we get scarred by bad trades and bad days. You know, our friend Tom... We had a big debate with him recently, and he kept bringing up this silver trade. And I, too, have these trades that have influenced me and have made me kind of be fearful of the future to a degree and make me want to change the way I do things because I had a bad experience. I think it's good sometimes to say, to acknowledge you made a really big mistake and you overtraded, you didn't follow your rules. But heck, you know, if we have a big bad period here where we have a drawdown here, it's probably not going to have anything to do with uh, choosing bad parameters or bad systems or not doing enough research. You know, stuff happens and we just can't go in and have, try not to have this scar us in a way that's going to permanently damage our psyche going forward and influence um, how we trade. We need to make those choices on how to trade from a dispassionate, science-based, research-based point of view and not too many emotions. Exactly right. And also, one should never forget that when you look at these track records, right, those that have these big drawdowns, or should we call them the scars, to keep to stay in that uh, terminology, those scars are there as evidence of people who survive. Because I can only say that people, uh, when you find people who don't have these scars, they usually are not around anymore. And uh, so, uh, so don't be afraid of that, uh, so to speak. Let's move on. There's another question here, and then we'll dig into all the uh, the wonderful topics that you have. Um, so this is uh, from Nick. Um, 
Nick writes, as always, thanks for running the show and highlighting the benefits of systematic approaches to markets. My question is around leverage and using borrowed money as part of a systematic trading approach. I wonder if there is a merit in using an investment loan to increase the size of a trading account. As far as I can see, that a trend follower slash systematic investor likely only ever has a fraction of their capital at risk uh, at any one time and that um, uh, that on each trade they know the limit uh, of their risk up until say 1% of capital etc. To my mind using borrowed money would enable a trader to grow their capital more quickly and using a systematic approach with appropriate position sizing and risk management helps manage the quote-unquote risks. Is there something that I'm missing? Um, I mean, just from my point of view, Nick, I would say that as a, as a CTA, if, if you're looking at us, we could easily increase the risks we take because we don't, as you rightly say, we don't need all the cash to do so. The, the problem becomes when you live in an uncertain future and you really don't know if your next order is going to be 20% or 50%, if you kind of double your leverage, it could mean that your account gets wiped out, you know. So I think in general, we as managers probably set our risk uh, levels to a point where we feel first and foremost that we are never going to blow up. And if you if you look at um, the various types of hedge fund strategies, I think it's pretty rare. I'd like to hear your view on this, Jerry. It's very rare that I come across a CTA that has blown up. I really, I can think of one or two uh, programs that have done it, but they were all like 3x versions of the main program the firms were running. They weren't the main program. Uh, how do you, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think we don't want to um, borrow money in order to take on more undue risk. So, and the way I calculate my risk is, you know, what is, how many markets am I trading? Uh, so I have 200. So I'm risking about 15 basis points per trade. So I think, you know, for... Per trade uh, or per market, Jerry? Uh, would you have more, would you take 15 basis points on every of your subsystem entries or is no, it... All, no, all the, okay. all the systems are... Right, in, yeah, okay. okay. So all four systems total 15 basis points. So it's really small, Yeah, but I don't volatility management manage so those positions can grow you know because the volatility expands so you know in conjunction with looking at my performance on a daily basis and doing back testing and many years of experience i feel like that i'm not over trading so to borrow more money so i could trade larger and larger and larger and risk one percent or 50 basis points i don't recommend that so and we do implicitly borrow using futures and for me, I have to borrow from my prime broker when I trade the single stocks. So I am actually borrowing. There's no more single stock futures. And the primary reason that we all use, uh, take advantage of futures borrowing or uh, stock borrowing is in order to get real diversification by sizing our positions and taking bigger positions in markets that have low volatility and smaller positions in markets that have higher volatility. So we're using these uh, tools available to us just for diversification, just for fine-tuning that risk. And like I always recommend, you know, trade really small. So at the same time you are taking advantage of futures and borrowing through your prime broker, 
you have a lot of cash left over in treasury bills. So I think I've been very consistent in saying that um, in 1983, Rich told us the biggest mistakes you'll make is not following your rules and over-trading. And I just want to raise my hand and say he was right. And I did make those mistakes. And I'm helping everyone else to encourage them not to make those mistakes. Trade small. And then once you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am really trading too small. Okay. If you can say that, add a little bit more, but be very careful. Yeah. And I do want to add one thing because you kind of mentioned it in, 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 your, in your comment, and that is you're absolutely right that uh, managers uh, like Chesapeake, like Don, we have a lot of cash sitting on the sideline in, uh, you know, and so in the old days, before the great financial crisis, the way it would normally work is people would just leave it at the bank. And then we realized during the great financial crisis, oops, bank can actually disappear and you lose all your money. Now I'm I'm just raising the point about you know treasuries. You're saying, well, do we want eighty percent of our money in in treasuries? And and of course, both your firm and 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 the firm I work for, we use the same cash manager because what we realize is that you can't just ignore that. We talk only about the trades, the entries, the exits, but actually there is another side to our business and that is to be very careful with all the cash we don't use and and as you say, it's not advisable from our point of view to just double your margin um, by trading twice as big. That's not really something we, 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 we would encourage at all. Um, so, but you may have to pay attention, more and more attention to the to the treasury side of your uh, of your cash than than before. Now let's jump to the tweets, uh, so to speak, that has uh, inspired our topics for today. And I guess the the, the first tweet that came uh, from you, uh, Jerry, relates to an exchange that you had with last week's guest, guest which uh, which is Tim Pickering, and obviously you know have known Tim for a very long time as uh, have I. And I knew when I had the conversation with Tim last week, as soon as he mentioned that word about adjusting position size, I knew that that's going to come up this week. Um, and then I also thought, and you and I actually kind of discussed it uh, a little bit before we pressed record, and that is, are people tired of listening to us talking about position sizing and volatility adjustments and all of that stuff? But actually, I think we both feel that from time to time, it is important, and maybe at the moment we're bringing it up on a regular basis, because... It is a bigger, it's a bigger topic than just whether you vault target or whether you dynamically position size or whatever. It is really at the core of of how you manage money and how you, um, yeah, allocate your portfolio. So, um, so I'm going to leave it to you to kind of dig into the parts of that comment from Tim that you want to uh, unpack a little bit, and um, and then we'll see where we go. Yeah, I would just say you know it's just a direct attack on what trend following is all about. And so people like Tim who volatility management, they don't mean it as an attack on us. It's just an attack on what we have come to believe and about trend following and that uh, it's an improvement from their point of view. So it's going to keep coming up because who else is attacking us? You know, who's saying take big losses? Who's take, who's saying like, don't diversify, don't do shorts, no one. So this is the only group we can pick on. And uh, we think we're right, and we're small, and so we're out of the mainstream. The vast majority of CTAs don't agree with Richard and me. 
and uh, Moritz and the people in my clubhouse. So, so uh, we're like these little small Davids fighting the Goliaths, and uh, we got nothing better to do. So I apologize. But, uh, you know, Rob and Tim, they cannot go a podcast without talking about me and mentioning me. And so I just take that as a compliment. And um, so I was particularly interested in what Tim said, and I'll just quote. He said, we adjust positions when risk-reward changes, it's the part of the longevity and part of the investor experience in terms of being involved in this asset class long term. In other words, if we don't do it, people won't give us money. And I'm like, I've all been on record as saying, probably you're right to a large degree. But then, you know, you've got to kind of stand up and say, you crossed the line. And uh, just because you're the client, I cannot meet your wishes on this. And so people draw the line in different places. Uh, like if you only have $100 million under management, you can be like me and be really steadfast. But if you have billions under management from people who like volatility management, then, uh, you know, I don't blame them, honestly. But he does bring up this one point. Uh, we adjust positions when risk-reward changes. And I think that's a bit different from what we've heard. Uh, and he goes on to say, it has nothing to do with sharp. It's how we extract value when risk-reward changes especially true on volatile shorts. And I thought, oh, this is quite a bit different, you know, because um, most of the fall management people, it's all about risk and reducing risk and getting the risk back to where it was. So we normalize positions based on fall at entry just to normalize the loss, to lose the same amount of money per trade, to give each trade the same number of ATRs against us to take that small loss. Uh, and so once it becomes profitable, we just let it go. And the volatility could double, triple, quadruple, but it's a profit. So we have it in a separate category, the category of let your profits run. Um, and so we don't abide by this risk idea that risk has changed very much or at all because our risk was the 15 or 25 basis points we we're going to lose. But Tim says, well, no, it's really we're adding value and we're able to identify that at some point um, – we're going to make more money, and it's a profit thing when we volatility management and we, we're extracting this value. And so I thought, oh, that's really good that he's admitting that because I've often accused these risk managers who do this that, well, you know, it, 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 it does do what you say, but also if the trend is sort of short-lived and um, kind of parabolic, then it's another way of taking off profits and Tim admits to this and says, yeah, this is how we kind of use it. It's actually helping us make more money, not just improving our sharp. Um, and so I thought, okay, I like that. I think I don't, I don't agree with it, but <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, he's adding value to dis the discussion and coming clean that this is exactly how he, how they look at it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's good. And this is why we, you know, Sometimes more often than, than other times, we, we will come back to this because it is fundamental uh, to many of the things we do in terms of, quote-unquote, provide the most value that we can think of um, to our clients, for sure. The next tweet, we kind you are always, not always, you almost alluded to it, but I think it's such an important uh, 
point. It was a, a comment that you made to one of Mike Green's um, points that he made on a podcast where he talked about this, that people, I think the way I understood it was that he, that he feels that people de facto believe that just because the uh, S&P has delivered 7 or 8% the last 100 years, that they, it's always going to deliver 7 or 8% for the next 100 years, so to speak. Is that, was I picking up on the right point on that? Exactly. I've mentioned this over the years, I'm, it's such yeah. a minority on this, even on the, on the pod, this podcast and everywhere, it's a given. You know, stocks are going to, they're the primary investment. This is their track record. It's the equity premium. We can all count on this. And uh, let's see if we can squeeze managed futures in to 5 or 10%. Um, and we'll just, it's supposed to help stocks. That's, you know, another big thing that it's not, CTAs can't be a standalone investment. Oh no! It, how does it fit in with the portfolio? Is it crisis alpha? Does it help? How does it help during those periods? We we read about this all the time, and this rock uh, solid assumption under all of that is stocks are are guaranteed, and we should uh, pay attention to this one hundred years history. And uh, he goes on to say uh, there are so many conditional components around this very short data set that we have that how could we possibly assume that equities have an eight percent return? just because of what they've done over 100 years. And this sounds like blasphemy. And it sounds like 100 years would be enough. But he's a really smart guy who agrees with me. So I'm going to tweet that. And I encourage people to go and listen to this. Uh, He goes on to say, even if when we use the longest data sets, having information on the behavior of stocks from the 1870s is just not particularly useful unless you think that the world is largely an invariant place I don't believe that at all. So I think that with our back test of thousands of uh, trades, entry, exit, stop loss, that we have a much more robust uh, strategy going forward. It's rules-based strategy that we've tested versus here's what happens if you stay long the S&P for the last 100 years. That I don't think is quite in, in, a, in our category of reliability and robustness. And I think, along with you, that we're going to start seeing some things in the future that don't look like the past. We've lost our imagination. It's just a brilliant statement you came up with of what bad things can happen. We got a glimpse of it in 2008 with the lost decade, but that quickly went away. And now we can all go back to um, creating funds that are heavily invested in long S&P with managed futures on the side, or all of these ideas that <clears throat> every single day people, whether they're going to be successful or not, is determined by can we trust what has happened in the last 100 years with stocks, and I don't think we can. And as you and I and Moritz have talked about, at some point in time, we've seen every country except the U.S. pretty much not have uh great or profitable historical returns in their country's stock markets. And uh, I think maybe the U.S. will be next, where we we may have this period where we have a prolonged bear market that wipes out uh, at least one decade or two of positive stock returns. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is really interesting. And I guess it goes back to, I don't know if it's narrative that's the right word or, or just maybe how we humans operate. But as you rightly say, you know, 
for most investors, it's almost a sure thing that they're going to continue to get long-term returns of 8% of equities because that's what they do. And then you look at Chesapeake with, say, a 40-year track record done at 50-year track record almost, and they never say to us, oh, well, you've provided you know this lovely double-digit return for all those decades. You're going to continue to do that, and that never comes up, right? They always suspect, oh, it must be over now. You can't continue to do that. So it's it's how we treat these topics uh, very differently that is fascinating, really. Um, maybe on a little bit on the same topic, uh, you had another, or you had an exchange with someone. I don't know the person, unfortunately, but someone who goes by the uh, Twitter handle JP. Um, and he was tweeting something about how to find the best investment strategy. He, he In the first section of his t- thread, he just talked about veterans might say uh, it is not the best recommendation, but for those who somewhat know what they're doing but can't get the ne- to the next point in their experiment with markets, I would sit down and figure out what would be utterly impossible to achieve in the markets in your view. Anyways... You tweeted back. Um, do you want to take it from there? or? Yeah, it was a really good tweet because it was reminding me how important it is to dream big, think big, take some time out just for thinking. I mean, I do a lot of, I get a lot of creativity just by like walking on the beach and just having pri- you know quiet time away from everything and uh, on the treadmill or something and trying to just think about how to make improvements from a big, big scale. And um, I thought that that's such a good idea. And I thought, what is my um, dream? And, you know, uh, something I may think is somewhat impossible. And it got to me thinking that uh, I seldom bring this up, but in my back testing with my long-term systems that have lots of uh, drawdown and volatility, that and I'm arguing about sharp all the time and volatility management and, and um the relevance of a drawdown and a big profit, um, my biggest profit of the year or ever, maybe Tesla has had some big drawdowns and it's still the biggest profit ever. And in order to get that big profit, I got to have those drawdowns. So I got to thinking though, oh, I keep forgetting that one of the great things about these longer term systems is that they're highly reliable. So I tweeted back, you know, my goal is to like make money like every year without, you know, without taking undue risk and uh, doing things that are not prudent, maximum diversification, proper leverage. But uh, yeah, and I think that uh, that's doable and it's possible to really have a high hit rate um, from a 12-month trailing return point of view. And I think that's one of the benefits that we I don't always articulate, that these, t- these type of systems are very reliable and uh, at the end of the year, it could have been very bouncy. But I tell you what, clients really like uh, making money frequently. Okay. Do you mind if I dig into this a little bit with you and ask you a couple of follow-up on that? Because I think that's very interesting what you say. Um, because, of course, uh, it, it, what you're suggesting here is wouldn't it be great if we could achieve a high level of consistency in our trend-following returns But I also think that we have many times talked about if there's one thing that is very difficult with trend following is to predict when it's going to make money, predict when it's going to lose money. So if there's one thing that I don't associate with trend following 
per se, I guess it depends on your time frame because I do believe it is consistent in its profile, but I'm not so sure that it's that consistent on a rolling 12-month basis. But let's just say it's a great dream to have, and I share the dream. I'd love to get it. So, so my question to you is, okay, based on what you know now, after 40-plus years of doing it, how would you try to achieve it, so to speak? Is there any particular part of your, of everything you've done, everything you've looked at, where you say, hmm, I think if I f- go down this path, and I know we talked about not doing too much research, so I'm not going to, but if we go down this path, actually we may get to something that is more consistent. Well, my backtesting has, uh, I, so I, I, I chose these long-term systems because of, I just felt they were more robust and fewer rules. And I'm going to live with these drawdowns and I'm going to keep telling myself that the drawdowns of open trade, big open trade profits, those drawdowns don't really matter. I'm protecting capital, but I've, in order to, um, to do that, I'm going to trade these long-term systems, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, and see what happens. So when I saw what happened, I, I stumbled onto that, hey, they're very consistent. They make money almost every year, which is just a calendar year. But if you do the trailing 12-month, which is a better measure for the future, it, they're in the 90% of 90%. So that is the first thing. What is the cost of vol management, of vol targeting, of paying attention to the equity curve and trying to prevent crazy drawdowns? I think it's going to be this type of consistency. Which So I encourage the Dunn Research Department to go back and update this research and see if they come up with the same thing. One entry, one exit, and stop loss, as bad as it is from all these traditional measures, is it fairly consistent? I think the answer is yes. My research guy just did a run recently, and it it's, was out of, out of sight. It was better than I could have even imagined, the percentage of winning years. Number two is massive diversification. So I probably have the smallest, unfortunately, crude, heating oil, unleaded, Brent gas oil position, so the energy market. So I have a really small position there. Everyone is making more money than me in this energy move because I have so many other markets, 190 other markets, and they're not doing as well as crude. So I think, though, that my relative underperformance in that particular sector or in March, um, yeah, March, I guess, I'm hoping that because I have it spread out further, that once again, this too will add to this more consistent approach of, and so I think it's totally fair to say, if you have this approach that's really long-term, that has these crazy drawdowns that no one else puts up with, could there possibly be a payoff for that? And I think the payoff is more consistency than methods that try to pay more attention to the monthly returns. Yeah, no, I like that. And by the way, I really do completely agree uh, that not just we as, as, as managers like consistency. I truly believe that every single investor out there would prefer 
uh, a high level of consistency in, in the returns they get from their managers. So, so um, well, we're going to follow this uh, evolution, I'm sure. Now, the next tweet came a little bit as a surprise for me because here you are in commenting on the crypto space, um, someone writing in about crypto being cheap um, because it was 56% below its 11-year exponential growth trend. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, wow. I think uh, I don't remember that one. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. That's fair enough. So you wrote back, uh, you, you commented back saying trend following alone, and then uh, the person said, sad that it has come to truth over profits for a young entrepreneur who has built this without any backing. I'm not so oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I see that one now. Yeah, Okay. so the point of that one was, that here was my friend who is trying to make a living, and he basically is just saying that he has to really be careful of how he uh, talks about strategies he's using for his clients. And so he's like, right. man, it's just a bummer. I can't be totally truthful and give trend following this credit. Uh, and, it, and it was his comment that um, something is 56% below its growth trend. And all of these drawdowns and losses and minus 56%, a lot of those things can be totally eliminated with just a simple trend approach. And uh, so there was a couple of things going on there. And I just felt sorry for this guy who is trying to run a business and protect his clients and how better to protect them. I don't know how to protect clients and protect your capital if you're not going to have a trend-following rule. I was on a, another podcast a few weeks ago, and the guy was we're talking about machine learning and AI. And I'm, I was just saying, like, I just think the last piece of code in like machine learning needs to be, you know, sell the breakout or buy the breakout. I mean, you've got to have that in there because things can go awry if you don't have that as your last rule. And so if you're going to have that as your last rule to save your ass uh, when your AI or ML is, wasn't able to predict the future, why have that other stuff anyways? And so that we just forego all of that and just say, okay, bottom line, respect those breakouts. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, in all of the years um, that I've been doing this, I have still not really come across a manager that specifically say they're doing AI machine learning that has consistently for a long period of time done well. I've seen a lot of great backtests using AI and ML. I've seen some people doing well for a short period of time. I've actually had them as a guest uh, on the podcast many, many years ago, but they're just simply not around anymore. Um, so I kind of like your your uh, addition to the to the code by the breakout at the end. Uh, the uh, yeah the um, there's another good podcast that just came out, so I wasn't able to include that in my list. But uh, Leda Braga from Systematica, I tweeted her podcast, and it was really good. Uh, and she talks about ML, machine learning, and what it, its shortcomings. And uh, she's super smart, and they're super sophisticated. So I was really happy that um, she is skeptical about predicting uh, as I am. So I encourage people to listen to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and also, I, I listened to uh, a bit of it, and then I got, got distracted. But I mean, the thing is, and, and I don't, it's not to pick on anyone, right? But even successful firms like, like her firm, 
Um, and this is, I think this is important for people to understand. You know, here you have one of the most successful firms in, 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 in our industry, right? And with a fantastic reputation. And later talks about how fun it is to, to do these type of sort of systematic trend-following strategies. But even them had a 10-year period where, make, where they made no money. You know, 10 years, that's a long time. So we just have to always, I think, get back to this setting of expectations that as much as we believe that this is a great strategy in the long run, you know, the long run can be very long from time to time. Um, and and and, But that doesn't mean that anything is wrong with the system as such, other than, back to your point, it would be great if we could achieve higher consistency, of course. You know, uh, another thing to talk about later with Richard, probably, and Rob, because I just pretend to know something about backtesting and math, <laughs> but they're the ones who really know it. And so I, she made this point that I thought was somewhat fascinating, and I'll just re- read it, and uh, we're, we're not going to, we, I can't really discuss it, sure. but it's really fascinating. And she goes, uh, the trend following signal is too weak to say mathematically that it's broken. Even many years of difficult performance will not signify that it's broken. The length of underperformance was not mathematically meaningful. Uh, so I thought, oh, wow. So, so we can't even, because people ask us a lot on this podcast, when do you know that it, it'll stop working, your system or trend following in general? And she's sort of saying, I think she's a, more of a quant person than me, uh, you can't even make those inferences because it's too weak. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, fantastic, because I actually embrace this weakness um, and the signals are too weak. And you, can, you can't get enough evidence so here we are trading something. It's incredibly profitable, and it's weak. We, we sort of feel that it's weak a lot of times because we don't make money, and people criticize it. But then we get to rely upon its weakness uh, and say to ourselves, but it's, it's so weak that we can't, even, we can't even say it's broke. <laughs> I love that. I mean, yeah, that is, so yeah, she's just funny. so good and passionate, and it was refreshing. Uh, so yeah. hit my Twitter, and you'll see that. It's really good. Good, good, good. Speaking of Twitter, another one closer to home. Um, now we're into uh, a couple of exchanges with our own Rich uh, about divergent regimes and how they may last a lot longer this time um, than a lot of people think, which is obviously also part of my own thesis here. And that we have seen uh, the end of the carry regime. That's certainly, in my view, uh, what's coming. And we have this new era of trend following, perhaps even like the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. So um, do you want to take it from here? The first tweet uh, that you got into um, was about positions. Um, I think Rich and I had talked about the fact that a lot of people think we're making money from the war in Ukraine, but actually all of our positions uh, in energies and in you know, other parts of the commodity uh, space um, were initiated way, way, way before there was even a Russian troop next to the Ukrainian border. So, so I don't know where you want to go with this, but I think that is that was the context. Yeah, so many places to go. This was a great podcast with uh, you and Rich. And uh, you said a lot of things that I liked, and, and of course, Rich did too. So, um, but I think it just reminded me that... Um, he says, be prepared to ride these trends for a long time. And I think that that's our human psychology is just always telling us, you know, be very fearful of giving back these profits when we should be very hopeful that they'll keep going. And that's what the back test says too. The back test says, try to use these longer term parameters, these loose pants, 
where all these scenarios can fit underneath and you don't get bounced out of this trend. So many things can happen um, and just hold on. And the charts can look very ugly. But I think another thing people ask us is um, long-term, medium-term, short-term, what should I do? And I think uh, the podcast that you had about exogenous, endogenous, go back and listen to those, and you come to this conclusion, or at least I did, that, oh, okay, that's why we want to do long-term, because exogenous trends that last a long time, exogenous events drive these long-term trends that can last for long periods of time. So in the back test kind of uh, supports that thesis. So I was always encouraged, again, not just that I'm looking to this back test, so I choose my parameters, but from that podcast and others, it seems that that makes a lot of sense, that we do see a lot of these long-term trends, that, that these trends that last for long periods of time, multiple years, and we should try to hang in there. You know, I'm still short. I'm going to give you this. You're going to, like, hate this, because yeah. I have listened to you say, oh, yeah, you said something, like, uh, a few few Uh-oh. months ago. It was kind of like, um, some, such and such market is down, like, 50%. <laughs> Moderna. And how can you still be long? And I was thinking like, Uh well, you know, as bad as that sounds, and as much as I agree with you, you just have to stay long until your exit gets hit. And so this is one of the frustrating things about breakouts, which are just the best. In every way that they're the best, theoretically, and in the back test. But when you get out of this at the 100-day low or the 150-day low, what percentage is it? It could be any percentage. I mean, it could just be five. It could be 50. And so you really can't say, well, who's going to stay in this trade minus 60% retracement? Well, <laughs> if it hasn't hit my, my trailing stop yet, I would be one of those people. And so these charts just look horrible. But so does that natural gas chart, Niels. Mm-hmm. the one that just made new equity highs. It had a monster drawdown. And I'll tell you right now, because I didn't get out, I know I handled that trade better than anybody. Mm. Because if you got out for any reason, you didn't make the money that I've made, you had to resize at the highs. So all I'm saying is sometimes this silly looking uh, way, it, do, it does work and it works the best. And, it's, and that's what the back test says. Because I am still short ruble. I'm still in ruble and I'm still short and it's given up all of its profit because simply it hasn't hit my trailing stop, which is embarrassing because it certainly doesn't look like it in a downtrend, but that's not our litmus test. Our litmus test is we have these parameters, these entries and exits. Are we going to follow them irrespective of what the chart looks like? And I'm trying my best to do that. And that is, of course, the absolute correct answer that you just gave there. And I don't, of course, would suggest that when I probably pose that question about who's still in this trade is, of course, trend followers would be if, as you say, if the stop hasn't been hit. By the way, speaking of ruble, I'm kind of surprised that it's still trading as a market. I thought that all these sanctions would make it impossible to trade ruble uh, because I think they... I heard from some, I saw some headlines, for example, people have who had exposure to the Russian equity markets, that the rules were that they had to mark them at zero, even though they theoretically has some value, but they, because it was Russian, they had to mark it at zero. I don't know uh, which rules they were exactly, but I think 
some of the big, um, uh, I don't know if it was auditors or administrators implementing rules relating to Russia had forced some funds to to do that. But the few, I guess you're trading it on the CME. Is that where it's trading? That's right. And, um, okay. you know, I was short. So Rich, uh, a few months ago, or within the past year, six months, uh, 12 months ago, he gave me permission <clears throat> to uh, trade stock indices. And uh, we, he and I talked about it. And I said, okay, I'm going to put short stock indices back on my portfolio. So I only short them. Right. And uh, go long the single stocks, short single stocks as well, and short indices. And so I have a decent position, short indices now, and I picked up some ETFs. So I ventured off into um, ETF land on some of the sh stock mar uh, country, you know, uh, ETFs. And, right. Um, yeah. Because the futures don't exist in some of these countries. And so I got short Russia. And then I got lucky because as it was crashing, I got out before it stopped trading. So that one, I don't know if I would still technically be short. Kind of like nickel. Okay. Uh, it reminds me of nickel. <clears throat> and yeah. so what's going to happen? But you got out for other reasons, right? Not because of a trading stop. You got out for other reasons of that trade. Exactly. Of the Russian. And so yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm still short the ruble, and I have been reading articles that it's very illiquid. But it's a small position, so hopefully sure. it works out. Okay, cool. Um, then you shared, and and I have to thank you uh, for doing this because uh, I know you mentioned it before, but but I think it's fantastic that you do it. You shared this sixty second clip from YouTube, I think, from uh, my conversation with Rich uh, as well. Probably the same conversation as before. Um, I don't even know how to do it myself. I probably should, but I I don't know. But anyways, you shared this clip where where he talked about uh, geometric uh, or the geometry of tra classic trend following. He talks about this e equity curve that, and and I have to say, I'm not so sure either. Rich and I didn't quite fully understand each other when when I explained my side of things, but I'm I'm not so sure. I fully agree with Rich on this that you you know. Because my 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 argument was that if you can stay a little bit closer to your equity high, not going into so deep drawdowns, your compounding effect will actually help you over time. And I kind of felt that Rich was saying, ah, no, it doesn't really matter because there's some geometric stuff going on inside the equity curve. And I'm not sure I fully understood it. I'll have to ask him again next time he's on. But I still think deep down that there is definitely some effect of deep drawdowns um, in terms of the long-term compounding growth of your overall capital. But anyways, you tweeted uh, part of that conversation. And, and yeah, this was that. a very good interaction. I mean, I learned so much uh, from him and you, and you were asking him all the right stuff. And yeah, I mean, we need to make him tell us more about this. And answer right, our okay. questions. You know, I ask him questions sometimes. He doesn't really answer them, <laughs> but I just keep asking them. He's just got so much knowledge, and uh, I think it's hard for him to anticipate what the heck I'm asking. But uh, <laughs> and then this clip thing, I was as I said in, in one of the tweets, it's just I, my editing, copy paste of what he says is just wish uh, would do it. I had to figure out how this clip works, and it was really good. And so 
you you ask him and you gave him your opinion, which you just stated, and he said no. Uh, basically, my interpretation was he's like, yes, you're correct. Um, when you have these drawdowns, you do have there is a negative impact. But what over? But this these outliers and letting these profits run, they overwhelm the drawdown. So don't cut the drawdown. Don't cut the possibility of this outlier profit in order to uh, limit the drawdown. Take the full drawdown because this these big outliers will overwhelm all those drawdowns. And I thought, man, this is, and that's what he called the geometry of trend following. And I thought, this is brilliant. And I thought, this is just the best thing. And what, another thing that I, I tried to, ask him and get him to explain to me was the second, my comment about that tweet, which is bumpy and lumpy creates more wealth with less risk. And I think he's on board with that, but he and I have not hammered that because when we talk to uh, these CTAs that fall manage, they talk about less risk. And what Rich is saying is, no, no, no. We have less risk by letting these trends go. And I think that is brilliant as well. That just needs to be more unpacked by him, more explanation. But I think that's where he's headed, is that ironically, we have more risk when we have more volatility because these, gym, these crazy outlier moves uh, give us so much profit that if we don't have them, Later on, we'll face uh, bigger drawdowns and, and less profit. So it's yeah. um, great yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as we move down the list of, of tweets, there's only a couple of left here. and um, But there's one here that is uh, from another friend of ours, namely Mark. Resipsinski and from his blog, I think this is where you found it. I think it's something about um, inertia of success um, as far as I can tell. Um, so do you remember where you were heading with that? Yeah, this was a, a really great one from Mark. Um, I'd probably tweet his articles more than anyone. I mean, he is just consistently great, especially if he mentions trend following. Then I'm all over top of that. But uh, he just has a very unique way of putting it together and helping me uh, understand deeper what's going on in the markets. And uh, I really like this part where he said, believing in your record as a measure of future success is dangerous. Uh, now, on one hand, we're not supposed to say, as you remind us, we're always we're not supposed to talk about future results, uh, past results as an indication right. of the future. I believe you agree we're not supposed to tell people we're going to make 50% per year over the next five years. Or like Kathy Wood <laughs> did the other day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, some of these tweets... Yeah. Well, let me just interact that she doesn't rely on past performance because her past performance is 25%, <laughs> and then she comes out saying she's going to do 50% in the next five years. Crazy That's right. stuff. So another okay. thing, we, we believe in all those things, but another thing Rich has said, which I think is another area to keep exploring, is he says something like, um, you know, the best evidence of success and risk management is the long-term track record. He's kind of saying, right. by the mere fact that Dunn has survived, they know how to protect your capital. And one thing that frustrates me is spreadsheet calculations. Sharp, Mar, 
Sortino, Serenity, any of them. They're from a spreadsheet. What are we, what are they, but what are we supposed to get from those? What are we actually going to use them for? They're shortcuts for are you going to survive? Or they should be. But however, some of the best track records out there have bad sharp ratios and bad sortinos and maybe uh, bad other types of ratios, but they've been around for 30 and 40 and 50 years. So, okay, but now we're saying you can't believe in this uh, track record. And so I think to some degree, we're saying like, uh, it's great what's happened in the past, but you have to be paranoid every day and be aware of what it takes to succeed every day going forward. And don't just rely upon what you've done and your previous success. So I think it's a little bit hard to understand or contradictory, but I really like this whole idea of, I like the past sometimes, but then I'm not going to uh, relax and not be paranoid and not be vigilant about what it takes to succeed just because of the past. And by the way, speaking of that, don't you think that every single strategy, the longer they run, the worse their stats will be? I mean, isn't that just inevitable that if you have a 10-year track record compared to a 20-year track record, most likely the 20-year track record would have a lower sharp and have a lower this, that, and the other. Isn't that just what to be expected? Maybe. I don't know. I would defer okay. to others. <laughs> the professor. yeah, professors on right. that one, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, let's defer to our final topic for today, which is uh, from another brilliant uh, professor, so to speak, um, certainly professor of, of writing great blog posts, and that is, of course, uh, Morgan Housel, who published an article that you uh, uh, tweeted about called Deep Roots. Uh, this is from late March. Um, so um, tell me a little bit about that. I have an idea of what it's about, but I would love to hear your thoughts uh, on this uh, particular post that you found interesting? Oh, yeah. So he's the second most often per per person I tweet. He's a very talented guy and probably is more of a value stock guy, but just like Howard Marks or other really famous managers, they have a lot of the same uh, core beliefs. And he goes on to say, the craziest events, good and bad, happened because little events, each of which was easy to ignore, compounded. The range of possible outcomes of what might be achievable can explode. And Rich talks about that a lot, about uh, the back test is just one, one possible event that occurred, but then going forward, the possibility of different things happening is infinite almost. Um, and this just is another reason that we all want to trend follow, because we really can't predict these little events, and we don't know how they're going to compound, and what's going to happen, and what the range of possible outcomes are. So just following the prices, these weak signals, I'm, I love weak signals. I'm going to start using that more and more. Uh, you know, that's our best idea of protecting our capital and uh, making a fair return. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, finish on that high note, so to speak. Uh, let me just quickly run through some numbers um, because it is, although it has been a, a shortened week, uh, performance has still been pretty uh, spectacular. I think so far in April, uh, beat up 50s up uh, three and three quarters percent, up 13.2 percent for the year. Sockgen CT index up 4.08 percent, up 17.4 uh, percent for the year. 
Sartian Trend Index, hard to keep up, up 5% so far, or 5.2% actually, up 23.8% so far this year. And the Sartian CTA, uh, Short-Term Traders Index, sorry, up 1.8% uh, and up 7.46%. By the way, did you know that the Sartian Trend Index just had its, I think, the third best quarterly return, calendar quarter return ever in its history. That was Q1. And the broader index, the Sokjian CTA index, it was the second best quarterly calendar quarter index, actually. So pretty strong start. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the uh, trend barometer is also still pretty strong, up uh, at a level of 66. So uh, it's enjoying a good uh, 2022 on a consistent basis. Uh in the other part, in the traditional world, MSCI World Index is down 3.06% in April, down 8.4% so far this year. And the World Government Bond Index having a rough, rough year, down 2.17% so far in April and down 8% so far this year, which I think is must be one of the worst starts to any calendar year in its history. Um, anyways, uh, we appreciate everyone listening and tuning in every week. Uh, if you feel you're getting some value from our conversations, please share and please rate and review as usual on Spotify and on iTunes. Um, next week, I'm joined by Alan. Make sure you send your questions in advance. You can email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and we'll do our best to get them answers for you next week. And by the way, do tune in to uh, Wednesday, the new Wednesday episodes. Alan just uh, wrapped up his first season of great great conversations with some of the top CIOs in the world um, and I especially enjoyed uh, also the last one he did uh, with Hugo from Rothschilds um, but starting on Wednesday we're going to move on to global macro as a topic and I'm doing that uh, with um, Jem Kassan uh, who many of you know already um, so that's going to be a fantastic series from Jerry and me thanks ever so much for listening until next time Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.